So what do you mean when you use the word love? It's a crucial question, though, for as one writer put it, love is a mini-splendored thing. In tennis, love means nothing. In marriage, love means everything, and in between, it can mean anything. I mean, I use the same word when I say, I love chocolate ice cream, and I love my wife. Does the word really mean the same thing in both contexts? And what about the storytellers of our culture, the novelists, the movie makers who create a lens, this narrative through which we view the world? What do they mean when they use the word love? Love in their eyes is almost all about romance. Love is a Cupid's arrow that pierces the heart. It's just a feeling, a a mysterious emotion that comes upon you. And sadly, in our cultural narrative, love then becomes a euphemism for sex, as in making love. For falling in love almost immediately results in sharing a bed. And for many, the whole same-sex marriage debate is summed up in the simple question, why should anyone tell anyone else who they can love? Is that what love is all about? A New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, suggests the English word love is trying to do so many different jobs at the same time that someone really ought to sit down with it and teach it how to delegate. The ancient Greeks already understood that the one word love could never really bear so big a load. Uh, So as many of you know, they had several different words for love. Eros is one. Eros is a romantic love. It's the word from which we get the term erotic. It's the love of passion and desire. Then there is philia. That's fraternal love, brotherly love. It's the companionship shared among siblings and friends. Another is storge. That's a paternal or maternal love, the natural love that that, that instinctive affection that parents have toward their children. That's the love that we celebrate on Mother's Day, isn't it? But as I mentioned last week, the word for love Paul uses in our passage from Romans 12 is agape. Now, there's nothing special about that word itself. It was just a general word for a warm regard for an interest in another person. But words have a way of gaining new meaning through use like the word friend in our age of Facebook. Uh, the, the deep significance of this word agape comes not in the ways that the Greeks understood it, but in the way that Paul and the early Christians used it. They filled it with a new and deeper meaning to characterize their new understanding of what love could and should mean. You see, agape was the word they used for love in the light of what God had now revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another, what was new was not the command to love one another. Now, that's found in the Old Testament. What was new was the new way that command to love was now to be understood in the light of the way God has revealed his love to us in Christ. It's the love of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or as Jesus describes it, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, even to death on a cross. You see, the cross of Christ provides a new dictionary meaning for the word love. 
In a sense, God acted it out for us so that we could understand. It's as if now when playing charades, all you need to do is to communicate the word love is to give the sign of the cross. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, John says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so in our passage from this letter to the Romans, uh, Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, as a consequence of his understanding of the gospel, Paul here is at pains to spell out how Christians are to love with this agape love, now that this love has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand agape love, this, this Christian love, as a revealed love. It's not a natural love as romantic or fraternal or parental loves are. All those loves come to us simply by our nature as human beings. They they can point in some way to this agape love. But this love is distinct. For you see, God is the source of this love. For God is love, agape love. And our love is to be a reflection of his nature as love. And you see, that's why we need to pray for this love even as we seek to practice it, because it has a supernatural quality to it. It must be enabled by the Holy Spirit of love who now lives in us, that spirit that we've just sung about. And so this love is displayed in, and it is made possible by various moral virtues, things like compassion and kindness and humility and patience, without which there can be no love. All these human virtues you see, are in the service of agape love, which is the sum of all of them. Love is the brilliant white light that captures the whole of the spectrum of colors that these moral virtues shine forth in human life. And the quality of love highlighted this morning is one in which we see its moral dimension in full display. Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere, Paul writes. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, does it surprise you that the very first thing that Paul says about sincere love is that it hates? Love hates. Now, how can that be? Now, perhaps you've seen some of those bumper stickers. I'm sure it was meant to take a stab at the religious right. They say, hate is not a family value. Well, here Paul would beg to disagree. In Paul's view, authentic, genuine, sincere love must include an element of hatred. And the, the word that Paul uses here is a very strong one. It means to detest, to abhor, to loathe. It includes the idea of rejection, even repulsion, implying a, a turning away from something. Hate. It's a strong word. And when our boys were growing up, we didn't allow them to use that word in our house when talking about people. They could say they disliked someone, but they couldn't say they hated them. But it's critical to note that Paul doesn't say anything about hating people, even people who oppose you, your enemies. In fact, as we'll see later in that passage, Paul will say just the opposite about that. No, Paul says that sincere love must hate evil. Now again, Paul uses the strongest word for evil or wickedness in the Greek language. And this is its only occurrence in his letter to the Romans. Love must hate, it must abhor, it must reject, and even be repulsed by all that is evil evil. And instead, love must cling to what is good. 
And that expression, cling to, is also very strong. It's the same word used to describe dust that sticks to your feet, or even a husband who leaves his father and mother and joins himself to his wife. So we're to to grab hold of, we're to hold on to and embrace what is good. And because of this, by his very nature, sincere love necessarily involves moral discernment. Do you see that? It involves an assessment, a moral judgment about what is good and what is evil. And more than that, it includes a movement of the heart away from the one and toward the other. Yes, Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. But certainly that didn't preclude this this exercise of moral evaluation. After all, just a few verses later, as we've heard, Jesus also says, do not give what is sacred to dogs and throw your pearls to pigs. Surely determining who are the dogs and the pigs would require some ethical appraisal. Now in Paul's view, love must include this moral evaluation of actions without indulging in the moral condemnation of people. Think about it this way. If you you love someone and sincerely desire their welfare, won't, won't I naturally hate all that would destroy them? I should hate the deadly power of cancer. I should hate the viciousness of violent crime. I should hate the abuse of drugs or of alcohol or of sex that so wrecks people's lives. You see, sincere love is no sentimental fantasy, this blind emotion that feels good about everything and everybody, and the silly tolerance of all things except anyone who is intolerant of anything, uh, that view which is so flippantly espoused these days. It's just ludicrous. No, sincere love is morally discerning. It recognizes that some things are evil and cannot be loved, and some things are good and must be loved. I mean, what kind of family value would not properly teach a hatred of racism or the hatred of the violent abuse of women and children? No. There's a moral dimension to love. Now, uh, we have some wonderful neighbors down in Keith Place, just a few blocks from here. We, we love our neighbors. And our neighbors two doors down, they, they have a sign up in their yard. Perhaps you've seen one. It says, hate has no home here. Now, I went by their house yesterday to ask them about it, but they weren't in. Uh, and now, since the sign is written in six languages, I assume that it was some sort of protest against what they perceived to be the angry hostility of some people toward immigrants in this country. That was the hate that they were opposed to, and that's a good thing. And I wanted to ask them if they hated what those people were doing. Now, they might hesitate, but they would probably say, yeah, they hated it. Then I wanted to ask them if they hated those people who they thought hated immigrants. And I doubt if they would say that. And surely they would say it was their ideology that was hateful. That's what they hated, and that would be fair enough. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Sincere love hates evil, not evil people. For as Paul says later in this passage, this sincere love to which we are called blesses those who persecute us and does good to those who oppose us. Does that mean then, to use the old slogan, that we are to hate the sin and love the sinner? Well, yes, but I don't think that's a very helpful way of putting it. As far as I can tell, the idea goes back at least to the great theologian Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century who said something very similar. In a letter addressing a problem of discipline in a nunnery, 
Augustine urged Christians to live with, quote, love for the persons and hatred of the sin. But Augustine knew the human heart very well. And so commenting on Paul's words in Galatians 6 about correcting a brother who has sinned, Augustine writes this. He says, we should never undertake the task of chiding another's sin unless cross-examining our own conscience, we can assure ourselves before God that we are acting from love. And if, as often happens, you begin some course of action from love and are proceeding with it in love, but a different feeling insinuates itself because you are resisted, deflecting you from reproach of a man's sin and making you attack the man himself. It were best, while watering the dust with your tears, To remember that we have no right to crow over another's sin since we sin in the very reproach of sin if anger at sin is better at making us sinners than mercy is at making us kind. And I think all of this is simply Augustine's reflections on Jesus' words that we read about not talking about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye without first taking the plank out of your own eye. We better be very careful in hating a person's sin, that we do it and show ourselves to be doing it out of love for the person. And notice too, Augustine talks about hating the sin but loving not the sinner but the person. We're to love the person. Hate the sin but love the sinner tends to put the person saying it on the side of the righteous who stands over against all those sinners out there. That's not right. And we're all sinners before God. It is much better with Augustine to speak about hating the sin but loving the person. For we're to treat every person with the dignity that comes from being created in the very image of God, whoever they may be and whatever they have done. We dare not forget that. And we're to love. But our love does not dissolve all moral distinctions. Agape love is not a nice or pleasing disposition It's not being complacent in the face of wrong. It hates evil. As one writer puts it, whoever does not hate evil does not love good. And it seems that in some way the Corinthian Christians of the first century had failed to see this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul seems shocked at this report that he had heard of a case of sexual immorality among the Corinthian Christians that was, Paul says, of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. It was a case of incest. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And what was the Corinthians' attitude to this evil in their midst? Uh, Paul says, and you are proud of it, Paul says, with some amazement. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief, he says, and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? I agree with one commentator on this episode. Genuine love would never join in the mood of self-congratulations or arrogance concerning tolerance or even warm acceptance of this incestuous man. This is not love, as Paul defines it, the love that hates evil. And disciplining that unrepentant man by putting him out of the church was, in Paul's mind, required as an act of love. It would demonstrate to that man the serious error of his ways, an error that threatened to lead to his own destruction, both in this age and in the age to come. Sincere love hates evil. It hates the sin while loving the person. And the final state of those persons is something we must leave to God alone. 
And the evil we're to hate, it's not just personal, it can also be social. The structural and institutions in, uh, 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 that, that sometimes perpetuate injustices that hurt people. The prophet Amos speaks to this. He says, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. And consider the prayer for social justice found in the Book of Common Prayer, which says that love, quote, makes no peace with oppression. Our own free church statement of faith makes this same point. Article 8, God commands us to love Him supremely and others sacrificially, to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, justice for the oppressed. And so it's a love that ought to compel us to hate the evils of an unjust society. And in this fallen world, there will always be injustices to oppose. And I think of the tragic lingering effects of racism in our country just for what? But I think the emphasis of Paul's statement here in our passage is not about how we act toward other people at all. It's more about how we look at ourselves. Do we hate evil in ourselves? You see, that's the first place we're to look, the plank in our own eyes. So let's talk for a moment about this evil that sincere love must hate. Now, significantly, I think Paul's assumption here is that this evil is real. It's something that exists outside our own heads. There is a real objective evil. It's not a matter of simply personal preference. It's not simply what I subjectively don't like in the sense of I hate broccoli. No, it's more than that. There's an objective reality to it because the notion of evil is grounded in the very character of God himself. You see, evil is more than just what we think might harm another person or what may discriminate between people unfairly, which seem to be the only two moral standards allowed in our culture today. Now, evil, as the Bible conceives it, is much bigger than that. Evil is all that's contrary to the will of God. For you see, God is the source of all that is good. He is the standard for all moral judgment. So evil is what is contrary to God's design for human flourishing. Evil is what spoils God's good creation. It denigrates human dignity. It violates the ways that human beings are meant to live. It undermines the social structures that make for ordered living. It thwarts God's purposes, His good purposes for human life, which includes all the ways that we are to relate to Him as our God. So evil is transgression of God's law. It's living apart from Him. It's not treating God as God. Evil is all that's done out of human pride and arrogance. It's all that's done for human glory and not God's glory. You see, the God who is love also hates. God hates evil. He hates all that is contrary to His nature, for He is holy and righteous and just and altogether good. So listen to these words from God. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Psalm 61, 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Zechariah 8, 17, do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. And God especially hates false religion, religion that deceives and misleads, especially the idolatry of the nations. He warns his people Israel as they were entering the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 12, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. 
Deuteronomy 16, do not set up a wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God. Do not erect a sacred stone for these the Lord your God hates. But you see, God also hates false religion among his own people. When Israel's own forms of worship had lost their meaning because the people had no concern for righteousness. So the prophet Amos says, I hate the Lord in the prophet Amos says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And God hates the perversion of his design for sexual relationships outside of marriage. Leviticus 18, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. This is detestable. That revulsion is expanded in other ways in Proverbs six, uh, chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. All these God hates. And the evil that God hates, and which we are to hate, is expanded by Jesus. Mark 7, for it is within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, Jesus says. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, this is what the Lord hates. And this is what love must hate if that love is to be the love that comes from God. For all these things, all these evil things, these immoral things, they all hinder real love. Do you see that? This necessary connection between moral virtue, the will of God, and love. Which means that if you are to love other people better, you must become a better person, a more godly person. See, I cannot love my wife and engage in sexual immorality. I cannot love you and lie to you. I can't love people while I'm consumed with greed. I can't love my coworkers or fellow students and then gossip about them. I can't pour myself out in love to other people when I am arrogantly full of myself in pride. See, love must hate evil, cling to what is good. That's the way it must work. There's no other way. But notice Jesus says this. He says, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, that's a big problem, isn't it? If we're to love well, there is something inside each one of us that we must hate. You see, this evil flows out of our own hearts. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. You see, there's something deeply wrong with us. For these evil thoughts lurk in the shadows of our own hearts. We do not love what we ought to love. We do not hate what we ought to hate. Our hearts are not aligned with the heart of God. Too often we get things mixed up. We call evil good and good evil. But the heart that loves, the heart that is rightly ordered, that good heart, it looks at evil 
and see something that is ugly, something that repulses rather than delights. But face it, too often we're attracted by evil. It looks good to us. But the person who loves with an agape love, the kind of love that Paul is describing here, has what you might call good taste. That person has a heart that is drawn to and attracted by what is good. That person sees beauty in goodness. And so that person loves by clinging, embracing what is good. So this is one of the central ideas. I want want you to grasp this morning. You see, real love, this love that Paul's been describing in this glorious passage, this love will flow out to us when we see the goodness and beauty of God's goodness, God's moral order, reality as God's designed it to be. That is to be attractive to us, such that we rejoice in it, we, we cling to it, we embrace it. We must want our lives to conform to God's goodness and truth in all, all its fullness. And a heart filled with that desire becomes the fountain out of which the decisions of our wills to love others and love even those who hurt us will inevitably flow. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth See, the one who loves with God's love finds beauty and joy in God's goodness and truth. Listen to these words of the psalmist, Psalm 119. The psalmist says, I delight, Lord, in your decrees. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Your statutes are my delight. You see, this truth, this goodness of God was revealed to the psalmist in the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was enough to uh, bring forth such passion in this person. But you see it now? We have even more reason to rejoice in the goodness and truth of God. For now, this grace and truth have been revealed to us in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when Paul says love clings to what is good and love rejoices with the truth, he's pointing us ultimately to the source of goodness and truth, the ground of goodness and truth, the very embodiment of goodness and truth, which is found in Jesus. You see, it's it's in him that we see what love looks like. And we will choose to love to the extent that we think that the life that Jesus lived, the life he calls us to, the life he promises to give us is the life we really want. That's the thing. And to the extent that we believe He has come to give us life in all its fullness, that He is the bread of life that satisfies our deepest hunger, that He is the living water that satisfies our our deepest thirst as we are drawn to Him and rejoice in knowing His love, to that extent we will choose to love as He has loved us. So love is an action. There's no doubt about that. But it also flows from a feeling, a disposition of the heart that hates what is evil and clings to what is good, a heart that is drawn to the beauty of Jesus and wants to become like him. And all our loves become rightly ordered only if our highest love and our deepest joy, what draws us first and foremost, is directed toward the truth and the goodness and beauty of our God and Father of Jesus Christ sincere love. This is what Paul is about. It's the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. 
And that love necessarily has a moral dimension to it. It it hates evils. It clings to those things that are good. We can't escape that. And to think that love is just some sentimental feeling that simply wishes people well, however they act, whatever they may believe, that kind of squishy love that's simply out of touch with reality. Sincere love must hate what is evil and cling to what is good because the love that Paul is expounding here, the agape love, this is God's love. And it has its source in the holy God who is love and it is the love that he has shown to us in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, it is on the cross of Christ that God shows us that this God who is love hates evil. Jesus in the garden prayed to his Father on the night before his death, if there is any other way, O Father, let this cup pass from me. There was no other way. We could be reconciled to a holy God. We could be justified before him only through the sacrificial death of his Son, a death which displayed to the world the severe penalty which our human sin deserved and a death which displayed to the world the righteous judgment of God upon all that is evil. You see, on the cross, the God who was loved demonstrated to us that he hates evil. And yet on the cross, God demonstrates also that he clings to what is good. He displayed his grace and mercy to sinners like you and me. He loved us when we were unlovable, loving us when we were still his enemies, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, from his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, this is the supernatural love that must grip our hearts. This is the love that has the power to change us from the inside. For when we turn to Christ, when we turn to him who died for us and rose again, when we turn to him in faith, God promises to work by his spirit to infuse our hearts with some of his love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Lord, our prayer is that we may love with a sincere love, your love, this agape love that hates evil and clings to what is good. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the corruption of our own hearts, which we know is drawn to and clings to what is evil and and rejects what is good. Too often, Lord, we know it, we see it, we feel it, we experience it. Forgive us, Lord, for those misdirected, those disordered loves that still, still reside in our hearts. Lord, we pray you'd change us. First of all, that that you'd forgive us. Wipe us clean. Lord, give us the the, the assurance of your grace and forgiveness that comes in Christ who died for those very sins, those those wicked thoughts within. 
And then, Lord, we pray for the power of your Spirit to change us, to transform us, to empower us more and more to be conformed to the very image of Christ, that the gospel we've received may be displayed in our lives, both individually and corporately as a church, Lord. Help us to love with this sincere love, this, this love that comes from God that hates evil, clings to what is good. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.